Hi, this is presenter Christodinopoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. Before I start, I do want to acknowledge that here at Triple R, we are on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And so I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge their continued connection to our beautiful skies, beautiful waterways, beautiful country here. But for now, we are going to be speaking to today's guest. Uh, we're going to be having a chat with Zena Cumston. Zena is a Barkindji woman with family connections to Broken Hill and Menindi in western New South Wales. She currently lives in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people with her partner and two boys. Zena works as a writer, a curator, consultant and researcher and is passionate about truth-telling and undertaking projects that directly benefit her community and country. In 2021, she curated the show Emu Sky for Science Gallery Melbourne, bringing together over 30 Aboriginal community members from across Southeast Australia. So today we'll be speaking to her about um, Emu Sky and how it's in its final week. But we're going to be starting off with a bit of a chat about something really important Zena was uh, one of the co-authors on, which is actually the State of the Environment Report. So Zena, welcome to Indigenuity. Thanks so much for having me, Crystal. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I, I was delighted to be able to interview you last year. It was around uh, the uh, NADOC Week of Healing Country. Yes. So it's nice to have you back and to be able to get an update on all the wonderful things that you've been up to. Um, and in particular, the State of the Environment Report, because I, I feel like I've seen it mentioned um, you know, across the media, but I feel like I still also don't know a whole lot about it. So I was wondering if you could tell us what is the State of the Environment Report? Yeah, sure. So um, it's actually a really comprehensive report that comes out every five years and it's meant to be an overview of what's been happening with the environment um, in Australia. And the reason why it's legislated is obviously it's really, really important for these things to be tracked. Um, it started in, I think, 1995 and, yeah, it's been going since then so there's been quite a few reports and strangely, um, I think this is the first time that the State of the Environment Report has had um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander co-authors. Yeah. So this is actually, this um, 2021 State of the Environment Report, um, it actually was finished at the end of last year and was supposed to be released straight away. But the, um, the minister at the time, Susan Lay, um, decided to shelve it. Oh. Um, because of the election and things that were coming up. And I guess they knew that there was going to be, um, I guess, maybe some not so great news stories about what our previous government had kind of uh, been, uh, I guess, a party to in terms of, yeah, things that have been happening with the environment. So, yeah, that was really sad. So it's actually only been released on um, the 19th of last month. But it should have been released last year. So that's why we're talking about the 2021 State of the Environment Report and we're in 2022. Um, but basically, yeah, it's this one has lots of firsts. And I guess the most important one for me and lots of other mob is that this is the first time we've really had our voices included in this report in a really powerful way. Yeah. And can you ex expand on, I guess, um, 
the, the fact that you have so many uh, Aboriginal co-authors who've been able to participate, um, what do you feel like that's brought to the report that might have been absent from previous ones? I think previous ones, whilst they tried to include um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and perspectives and, you know, work that's happening out on country, it was done in a way that um, I guess was had much more brevity in lots of ways. So there was really not very much um, included in terms of, um, I guess, our perspectives right across the country of what we're seeing happening on country. But also it was just, um, it was really light on in terms of reporting the really amazing work that mobs are doing everywhere on their own countries and and, um, that's really something that is front and centre in this most recent one because um, all of us come from different backgrounds, all the authors. Um, For example, um, I am not a scientist uh, but I think I was included because I've been working um, with a lot of scientists for the last sort of five years or so. And I also have a background um, in plant um, use and lots of other sort of areas that I guess, um, you know, were helpful in terms of being able to tell the story of the environment in this way. Because ultimately, it was really important for this report to be something that could reach a wide audience, because it's not just for lawmakers, it's not for academics, it's actually for everyone to be able to look at what's happening to the environment, for it to be in plain language that we can all understand, but also for it to reflect all of our different communities. And so I feel like this report, like, for example, the work that I did, um, and I can't speak for the other authors, but I know they all worked incredibly hard to make sure that they were doing the right thing by our people and by country. Um, We all felt a huge burden to really make it um, the best that we possibly could because it's so important that countries cared for in a way that aligns with our um, responsibilities of custodianship. So with, with the work that I did, I really worked hard to make sure that the case studies that I worked on and all of the research I worked on really um, used as much as possible um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors, scientists, but also um, really worked in collaboration with the people who I was uh, trying to get the story out about. So, for example, I really wanted to include a case study in the Heritage chapter about the work that the mob at Berenji Gadjin have been doing with Parks Victoria, which has been all about protecting their rock art. Um, And that's actually, you know, it's been a really difficult journey um, for Berenji Gadjin mob, but there's been incredible outcomes and that rock art is now, um, you know, much safer than it was before they started that work, that's for sure. And there's been some really great collaborations like that happening um, right across the country and I know that all of the Indigenous authors worked really hard to tell those stories because when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are empowered to look after country, um, it's really incredible the the outcomes because so often we're still seen as consultants. We're on the side. Um, we don't have a lot of real power in many ways. Things are being managed in a, a top-down way that we often just sort of get seen as consultants and then completely ignored. Yeah. But there's a lot of projects happening that people have worked so hard, hard to get up on their own country and actually a lot of the projects that we reported on are showing the best possible outcomes for biodiversity through that work. And so it's not just us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who wanted those projects to be properly documented and part of the State of the Environment report. There was a huge push right across um, many different areas of the scientific community for those stories to be front and centre because they are some of the best work that's happening here.
Yeah, wonderful. It is. Um, uh, no, it, it is a shame though that uh, the report, I guess, it wasn't able to be released until this year because of that sort of suppression of it. Particularly when it's uh, clearly important information. It's wonderful to be able to see the um, the representation of Indigenous co-authors on it and the perspectives that can be brought forward. Are you able to share some sort of insight on what like the scope of the report was? And um, uh, I guess because you've, you've mentioned that there's a heritage chapter. So mm-hmm. what was sort of like uh, what are the topics that the report's trying to bring forward? Yeah, so I guess in a way that's very different to the way we see country um, in that very, you know, fundamentally holistic way, the report does silo things the way that non-Indigenous science tends to. Um, So in some ways the structure itself was, you know, a little bit problematic for some of us to work with, but we found ways of kind of making it work for us. Um, So it's broken up into lots and lots of chapters um, and there's the chief sort of um, co-authors and then there's like... Um, I think there was more than 39 authors altogether and, wow. and there was nine Indigenous authors. Now, this year as well, uh, another one of those firsts was that one of the chief co-authors was Dr Terry Janke, who um, is a, an incredible Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman, yeah. um, you know, someone who has been working really hard in terms of uh, especially intellectual and cultural property rights. And it was really important for all of the Indigenous co-authors to have Terry as a lead because she really um, worked hard to make sure that we had cultural safety and she went into bat for all of us a lot when things were kind of, um, I guess, a little bit problematic for us because firsts are difficult and we shouldn't be in 2021 and having it the first time um, voices have been included from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community members but, you know, that aside, we were all just doing the best we could on that, you know, that huge learning curve that it was for, uh, you know, a massive government report to even include us. Yeah. So there's loads of chapters. So you've got things like um, the Heritage and Urban chapter, which I co-wrote on. Mm-hmm. And then there was a new chapter, another first, which was just named Indigenous. And that was a chapter that was really dedicated to telling those stories that we definitely had through all parts of the report but we actually got to have a whole chapter where we just spoke about things that are really important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country. There was lots of work done um, with having community um, meetings and uh, a lot of the comments from people and the things that they were really worried about and wanted to tell government about were recorded and we actually got to include a lot of those quotes Um, so they're not people aren't named yeah um but there's you know there's the voices of mob in there talking about things that really matter to them and things that are happening on their country that they're extremely concerned about and um I recently reread the report because obviously I hadn't seen it for some time and I was really proud um, of all the voices that are in there it's so important to be able to hear from people and communities instead yeah. of it being mediated through academics or, you know, non-Indigenous people who, whilst a lot of people are very um, much doing great work, we've got more skin in the game in a very different way and yeah. it's really important to hear from us direct and I feel like the report managed to do that. So um, you feel that, because I, I know, like, as you mentioned before, right, um, just the report itself uh, being pushed back because of the way that it might politically sort of appear. Do you feel like you were able to do, like, the level of truth-telling you would like to? Or do you feel like that um, you were, I don't know, sort of encumbered by what people would hope the report would look like versus the, the information that you wanted to tell? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Crystal. And this is my first time doing a big government job like this. And so... 
there were things that were very different for me in the way that um, I guess we... I've done a lot of projects with heaps of other Aboriginal people and sort of not too much um, happening on the outside in terms of like uh, reports or things where we haven't really been included before. Mm. So I kind of, there was like a legacy of this report and how it used to be and how people, I guess, expected it to run. But because, you know, we were all there as well, things were quite different and they were different for all the people who were, you know, doing all of the incredible work to kind of pull us all together as well. So it was always this process of kind of, I guess, us sometimes having to say, this doesn't work for us. Um, That actually isn't the way that this information is best um, presented. And, you know, there were always, it was never going to be perfect and I'm not going to say it's perfect. Yeah. But I know that there was lots of, um, there was lots of pushing and pull and there were times where we managed to really bend things to a way that was a much um, more, I guess, friendly way for us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be able to express ourselves and to be able to know that we were doing the right things by our community. So that was really great and I think there was lots of learning um, for everyone but especially, you know, government mob who were putting it together. Um, It was very different for them. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the way that we were working and what was important to us but having Terry there was just incredible because, you know, we're talking ultimately about Indigenous knowledge being shared and we're talking about community and having someone who has that long-term standing as a person who knows how to protect um, Indigenous knowledge rights um, and cultural property was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's it's good to hear. I um Terry Janke has been one of those people that I have a great respect for in the work that she does and um just the I feel like just oh I can't I don't know if I can find the right words for it, but I feel like she's really helped bring mob forward and feeling very grounded in ourselves and yes. what our rights are. Yeah. So her being um a key part of this report brings me a lot of uh like this is my little brain fog where I'm trying to think of the right words, but uh, it makes me feel like I'm more comfortable because I like Absolutely. If, if I trust someone to do truth telling, I know that yeah. it comes from voices like hers and like yourself as well. Um, so I, I love that you made like the note about how, yes, there's this chapter that's called Indigenous that gets to focus on Indigenous topics, but that you've also holistically integrated Indigenous perspectives across the report. Yes. I was wondering if you could tell us like what then does that Indigenous chapter look like? What does it sort of explore? Well, it's got loads of case studies and and many um, that were done in collaboration with community members and also some different um, entities actually wanted to write their own without any sort of help from any of us. They didn't need it. So, you know, people talked about things that projects that they've been spearheading um, that are to do with the environment and you know best examples because that's what the report really is meant to be it's it's meant to be a coming together of the best available evidence about how to best care for um, our environment here in Australia yeah so yeah there's so many people who are not co-authors but who actually contributed really amazing work so it's not just us nine um, mob who are on the report yeah when you when it comes down to it there's probably um, if you include the quotes, it's many hundred, hundreds yeah. of people who wow. who spoke about the environment within that and some were case studies and some were just little snippets about what's happening on their country and what they see as um, being problems and solutions also. Yeah. And this, and this might be way too, like, I guess, like broad of a question to ask, but I'm curious, like, what were the main outcomes of the report? Like, are 
is the environment in trouble? What's the state of it? Um, what should we be aware of? Yeah, so I was a little bit disappointed when the report came out because, um, firstly, um, the media didn't really seem to want to talk to the Indigenous authors and I thought that was a really powerful story to tell. Yeah, I was also surprised. I thought there would be way more media about yeah. it. Um, yeah. yeah, there was a little bit, yeah. um, but very little. Yeah. And so there was a lot of um, non-Indigenous scientists who kind of um, jumped on the report coming out, which I totally understand. We all have things that we need to get out there. Yeah. Um, but I was a bit upset because uh, for me it was a lot of people sort of um, clutching their pearls and sort of shrieking about how terrible everything is. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not good news. We knew it wasn't going to be good news. It's That's not a surprise for anyone. Yeah. Um, but I think when people actually read the report, you can see that there are many amazing things happening and we actually can redirect this ship a little bit. But the media that I saw and what people were talking about was kind of disaster porn. Yeah. And that's it. really not helpful. And I really felt like they hadn't really looked at the report properly because there are so many examples of things that are really working. And so um, I really hated that that was the main story because... We all need to feel empowered. We might not all be traditional custodians, but we are all custodians of country. And something like the State of the Environment Report, if you're not sure what you can do to help or you're feeling really hopeless, actually looking at that literature and all the many thousands of hours of research and talking to people that went into it is a really good way for us to think about things that we can do. Yeah. So, you know, there's case studies in there that show how great citizen science is and how much that's helping, land care programs. Um, there's so many things that we can all do and the environment is in big trouble and that's really obvious in the report. And one thing that, you know, is, is heartbreaking but we all knew it anyway, every report from 1995 has spoken about climate change as though it's coming and in the future this report we all obviously all had to talk about it as though it is absolutely here and that's the science like yeah. that's what all the scientists are saying and all the research that's been done so that was a sad first um amongst you know some of the happier firsts that in were encompassed in this report but it's we're at a point now where if we can all come together and take responsibility for country I think that the report shows it as well um the science is there we can do a lot to, to meet the challenges that are coming and empowering Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to lead on country, to me, is an absolute no-brainer, especially when you see all those case studies and the things that are happening. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. It sort of brings to mind how, because um, like, for example, you said yourself like, oh, I'm not a scientist, but like, but like obviously as I know and, uh, and a lot of people who know you, you have done so much phenomenal work and research to understand topics so intimately. And that's a very... Like that's uh, a very common, um, uh, once again, think of like the wrong words to say. I'm just going to say common experience for a lot of mob yeah. who are very like uh, knowledgeable uh, about country, um, traditional practices for caring for country. And yet we do end up with like a lot of gatekeeping on like, oh, but like what's your like Western qualifications? Are you a scientist? Do you have these degrees? When this knowledge is something that we really need to be engaging with particularly because of how uh, brutal things like climate change are mm. and uh, the, really, the real genuine need to be able to heal country, especially when it comes to bushfires. That's one of my uh, my biggest concerns, I feel. Yeah. And it's such an unnecessary like um, uh, disaster that we go through all the time, like every cycle of a few years. Yes. With no improvement by the, feel, by the looks of it, at least. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, something you said there made me think of something I wanted to talk about, but now I've forgotten. Oh, <laughs> yes, this is it. Another first yeah. is that for the first time across the report, um, human well-being is something that has been calibrated and measured oh. and is part of the assessments. And it's really strange to me as an Aboriginal person to hear that well-being hasn't been part of our conceptualisation of how the, well the environment's going yeah. because we know that if country's not healthy, people can't be healthy and it's so much part of our diverse cultures across Australia is that understanding that healthy country is healthy people. Yeah. But this is the first time that non-Indigenous science has been able to recognise that and it's actually a fundamental part of the report is human well-being and, and um how that how that is interrelated with what's happening in the environment yeah I mean I that feels so like obvious it's almost like we're looking at we're looking at the environment and not taking into account that we are a, a part of the environment and dependent on the environment just like any other literally any other being or any other species of animal or plant or anything so um it is interesting to hear that that's sort of being taken into account now yeah so I know that like the I guess like the conclusion when it comes to state of environment report is for everyone if they can to read the report absorb the good and the bad yeah and to um to I guess uh take inspiration for that to find a way forward would you say anything to any like listeners who want to read the report um that you might be able to sort of give them a tip or guide them on how to engage with it yeah so it's um it's Really easy just to Google State of the Environment Report 2021 so you can find it very easily. Mm -hmm. The report itself is huge, yeah. many hundreds of thousands of words. Okay. Um, yeah, um, it's probably the most I've ever written in my life actually. I realised when I finished working on it that I'd probably produced um, more than 100,000 words and, you know, I don't have a, a, a honours or a PhD but yeah. I thought oh, I think I kind of know what that feels like now in yeah. some ways but not that you know I'm not um I'm not saying that um the work that I did was anywhere near an honours or a, a, a PhD but it was like it, it was sounds, a lot it's of a writing and yeah. reading and um you know conferring with other authors and yeah. with um yeah the whole mob that were on the the massive team um but you know I think it's it's difficult reading, most certainly, but um, it's really worth reading. I think, especially because there is so much positive in there as well, as well as all the kind of doom and gloom. Doom and gloom doesn't help any of us in terms of the environment because it you know it literally makes people put their head in the sand. And researchers have told us that for many years of um, looking at how people react mm. when these terrible environmental situations are just completely negative. Yep. And I'm not saying that I'm trying to sugarcoat anything to make it more palatable. There is a lot of really great um, storytelling yep. in the report. But also, you know, for me, reading about the work that people are doing around Australia made me feel much better <laughs> about, you know, how where everything's at. Yeah. But yeah, for mob who are listening, you might want to um, have a look at the Indigenous chapter. And, um, you know, for, for non-Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander people, I also would say that that's a good chapter to start with because I'm really proud of that chapter because I think it's an excellent resource. Like I hope people at unis and other places can use it because it doesn't just talk about the environment. It talks about, for example, we break down what is country, what is country for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? What does the environment mean for us? Yeah. Um, and it breaks down lots of really interesting things that people probably do want to know more about. Yeah. Um, so I think it's an excellent resource. But more than anything, I just, um, I guess I love that Indigenous chapter because 
it's our stories and I think they're told in a really interesting way and it's it's a cracking read I think (laughs) even though you know there's obviously a lot of you know things that are very sad it was hard to work on the report there were times that it really affected my mental health yeah and the burden of making sure that you know we got it right that um was a lot because you know ultimately all my work uh, in everything I'm trying to do, I'm trying to empower my people and I'm really trying to empower country and yep. ha- and have more dialogues about how we're treating country and, and ways that that could be way better for all of us. And, yeah, so I think that Indigenous chapter is a good one to start on. But if you go up to, like, the hamburger bit, when you go on to the, um, the report and you click on it, yeah. it'll show you all the chapters. Awesome. And so if someone's interested in heritage, for example, they could look at the heritage chapter or if someone's really interested in um, coastal environments, um, there's a whole one on that. Yeah. Um, there's a whole one on inland water, which um, I would have loved to have written on because I'm so passionate about our barker and what's happened and also in it, it um, being reported on properly. I feel like people don't know what's happened on our country. It's yeah. It's so harrowing what happened to our Barker, um, which is the Darling River. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, I, I don't know if that's, um, uh, I, I know that it can be like there's an emotional load to discussing these types of topics, mm. but I actually don't know um, what has happened to the Barker. So- oh, okay. So uh, basically um, there's, I don't know how to explain this. Um, so uh our barker, like all waterways mm-hmm. um, in Australia, is interconnected with other waterways. Yeah. And it kind of runs down from, um, as far as I know, Queensland, like up that way, runs down into our country in New South Wales. And then it actually goes down and eventually becomes the um, Dungala, I think it's called, the Murray River. Yeah. Um, and then that goes out on Nutanjeri country um, to the ocean. But yeah. it's all interconnected. And what's happened with our barker is over... Um, Uh, you know, quite a long period of time, but particularly more recently, there has been mismanagement, bastardry, water theft, um, and it's got to the point where um, our barker was completely dry and for a really long period of time. And it has had catastrophic outcomes for people, for country, but also for like all living things. Um, So for example, in 2019, um, around a million fish washed up dead, um, in Menindi, at the Menindi. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, so that's that's what's happened to the Barker. Oh, wow, yeah. So it's it's really a lot to do with um, industry yeah, and really terrible industries being allowed to sort of run along that river. And, you know, we as Aboriginal people um, always, like, you don't have to tell us, for example, to have a fish quota or things like that. In our culture, when everything's sort of like, you know, as it should be, we we self-regulate. It's part of our law and our understanding of how if we look after country, she can look after us and looking after her as though she's kin, she's our mother. And it's such a different perspective, people that, you know, come in and sort of have industry along that waterway, along the Barker, because, you know, basically water has been, um, it's been commodified and it's big money for people. And um, allocations have been um, given for things like cotton farming and almonds and things that are actually silly things for us to be growing really in this country because they take way too much from country and especially water. Yeah. And that's really such a huge problem. But 
I've also had, you know, there's like, oh, this billion dollar plus plan of how to fix the Barker and the that Murray Darling sort of um, region, and it's just been an absolute mess um, yeah. because fundamentally the things that need to change aren't, and we. Um, as Aboriginal people right along the Barker, like there's so many different mobs, really haven't been given a say, a seat at the table um, and it's been really horrible and especially for elders that have really gone into bat to get the message out and try and fight. Yeah. Um, I know it's taken a huge toll on Uncle Badger Bates' health over time and whilst now we actually have water in the Barker, and it's looking pretty healthy and there's lots of birds um, there and things are looking good. Actually, it's a little bit scary because nothing has changed except for, you know, a massive amount of rain coming. So this could all happen again and and almost certainly will Yeah. because nothing's been sorted out on that level of who's being allocated the water, who's stealing water. Um, it's kind of – it's a really big story that I'm probably not doing justice to here – um, but there's so if you Google um, Darling River or, or the Barker, yeah, um, things will come up because you, there's so much information. Um, but yeah, I apologise. I'm probably not explaining it very no, well. No, I but think you've got that across so well. It's it's that's just so harrowing. It's like you almost don't know how to respond to it. I um, so I like I would I then. Uh, extrapolate right like i know that these issues with country exist right across the continent yeah um and uh does that mean that that for example that particular case study did that make it into the report or is that something that um yes okay. it did yeah. and i um in all of my chapters was able to include information Good. um and also uh direct quotes from community members um about what what's been happening on the barker as well and yeah. i you know with with lots of the work I put in, I expected a lot of it to be cut and actually hardly any of it was. So it was really good. Yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, so there's probably not as much as I personally as a Barkindji person would want in there about the Barker. Yeah. Uh, but there, there is still a, there's a lot of information and especially about the way it's affected community because without that waterway, we actually don't exist. Yeah. You know, we're Barkindji people. Yeah. Barker, river people is everything it's everything and it affects people's lives so terribly and you know so many problems come um as a direct result of of that waterway being absolutely pillaged and disrespected and run into the ground um you you don't you can't even comprehend the the problems that it causes for communities right along it you know suicide people feel helpless um it's just horrible and more than that, it turned into this like toxic um, mess because the algae that developed from just the way that everything was kind of happening and, um, yeah, the chemical imbalances that were happening in the Barker because mm. of, you know, it getting down so low and then our groundwater table is also affected so the saltiness comes up. Yeah. Um, it's just – it's – if that river is sick, our people are sick yeah. and you can actually see it playing out in all of the terrible things that were happening in community and I think a lot of people in Australia don't even know about that situation no, yeah. and, yeah, it's it was like a toxic mess. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that, but I really do appreciate you explaining the situation. And I'm, I'm glad you're able to talk about it in the State of the Environment report as well because it, like, it would concern me, all, like, honestly... Um, 
just I, like, uh, you know, you have one report that can be so comprehensive, but there are obviously so many issues with country. And mm. that in particular sounds like a story that needs to be more commonly known. Because like, hey, I know, I feel like, um, I feel like I'm, I'm a bit more knowledgeable than the typical person about issues impacting country. And even I had absolutely no idea the extent to what the Barker was suffering. So yeah, and I like, I don't live on country as well. So, you know, I'm, whilst I've been really careful to understand what's happening on my country and I've done everything I possibly can to sort of be a part of getting the word out at any opportunity, um, the best people really to listen to is like Uncle Badger Bates, his interviews. He yep. He's so knowledgeable because Uncle Badger's been seeing this destruction happening over a really long period of time yep. and it's culminated in, in this really, really terrible mess right now but it's actually been going on forever yeah. since, you know, our lands were first invaded. Yeah. The start of this destruction kind of was put into play. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a real worry for me because I feel like um, when the river's looking so good now and, and things um, aren't as quite as desperate as they were in recent years, I feel like people forget. Because, like I said, it could just all happen all over again straight away. Yeah, and that's that's the way I feel as well about, like, the bushfire seasons that we go through in the country because there's always a few years break. And I feel – I just worry that sometimes we get complacent with just how catastrophic these things are. I, I, I have to say, for, for listeners who are just tuning in, um, I've been having a yarn with uh, Barkindji woman Zena Cumston, uh, excellent curator, researcher, wonderful human being. Um, and we've been talking about the State of the Environment Report, which uh, Zena was a co-author on, and also about some of the issues that are impacting Barkindji country, in particular when it comes to the Barker River, which is such, such a oh, – you can't even, I guess um, – put into words how important that river is to the Bakunji people, to that culture, to that history. Um, so if, you've, if you're just tuning in now, I do recommend uh, after the show, if you want to listen back, going to rrr.org.au forward slash indigenuity or at least searching up indigenuity and uh, and having a having a listen. Um, Zena, I do want to ask you about <laughs> – I could yarn to you genuinely all day. Um, I want to have a chat to you about Emu Sky. So um, just for any listeners who may not know what Emu Sky is, Emu Sky is an exhibition uh, that Zena has curated that's now showing at um, Old Quad at the University of Melbourne's Parkville campus. Um, it explores Indigenous land, land management, knowledge, science, plant use, language and truth-telling with a strong focus on southeastern Australia. So you have over 30 Aboriginal community members sharing their stories, knowledge and art practice. And I've seen it myself. It's a phenomenal exhibition. It's so immersive, so many different ways of being really um, just drawn into the stories that you're telling, uh, so many things that you can see, you can hear, you can you can sit and just absorb. Um, and it's in its final week. So it's actually wrapping up now, August 21st. So you have exactly next Sunday, you have from this Sunday onwards, um, your chance to go see Emu Sky before it wraps up. And so I wanted to ask, uh, can you tell us a bit about Emu Sky and how it came about? Um, yeah, sure. So um, Emu Sky really... Um was meant to be a very small project and I was asked by Science Gallery in Melbourne to come on board to curate a show um, in collaboration with the Herbarium at the University of Melbourne and I think originally it was just meant to be I guess mostly about Indigenous plant use which is an area that I'm really passionate about and interested in um, but there was quite a few uh, I guess um, moments where 
uh, it became really clear that that wasn't going to be how the show played out. So first of all, I went to the herbarium and there's a wonderful woman that runs it called Jo Birch and I really enjoyed yarning with her and I looked as much as I could through the collections and then I also went online um, and looked at the collections in that way. And then I kind of realised by the second week that I wasn't finding anything at all in terms of um, Aboriginal people's knowledge of plants within that collection. And that collection's been, you know, it's had a life for more than 180 years, not always in the same building it's in now, but that's when things I think were starting to be collected. And I thought about that, um, I guess, in terms of what benefit doing a an exhibition about um, what is really, in terms of uh, representation of our knowledge, a black hole, um, what that would mean for the artists coming in. Because, I mean, it's not anything new, but I did find it quite depressing that there wasn't anything that had been recorded, mm. especially since some of the researchers were on the same country for like 30, 40 years. Yeah, wow. You think, wow, you know, there's not even any tools for breaking seeds that they've seen mob using and asked about or recorded. Um So, yeah, it was a bit of a difficult situation and I sort of didn't really know what to do. But for myself, as I'm getting older, it's really, really important for me for all the projects that I do to benefit country and mob as much as possible. And I thought this would be awesome for the herbarium because, you know, 180 years of nothing could kind of be cleared up by, you know, five, ten amazing artists coming in, looking at the collections and adding their own really rich perspectives um, as Aboriginal people. But then I thought, no, that's actually not good enough for me. Like, I don't want to bring artists into that space where they have to kind of do all the work, really. Um, And in a way, that's a bit weird to say, oh, it has to be about the herbarium when there's nothing there. So I spoke to Science Gallery Mob and, um, you know, wrote a big proposal about sort of changing the focus of the show. And I thought about what, you know, I thought would maybe be something that community members would be interested in. And that was kind of a broad... I guess, um, exploration of our relationship with country, our perspectives in terms of country. And I guess it was a bit of an extension of what I ended up doing on the State of the Environment Report in some yeah. ways. And there were times that I was working on both concurrently. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of crossover, I guess, as well. But I wanted to give people an opportunity through the platform that I was being given to have their own platform to say things that meant a lot to them through their artworks and through their research. And so... Basically, we ended up all together with um, more than 30 collaborators. Some of them are on, you know, on the floor in the, in the gallery space and then others are on the website. So a lot of really amazing um, black thinkers have written beautiful essays for us about the show but also not necessarily about the show but one of the themes of the show. Um, so it's ended up being much bigger than we ever sort of anticipated at the start because it was actually meant to go up nine months after I was employed and it was meant to be a pop-up show for Science Gallery Melbourne that you know, they hadn't yet opened and this would have, was meant to be um, around mid-2020. Yeah. And, of course, about a month after I started working on the show, um, that little tiny column in the paper about this strange new virus is yep. say no more. Um, so it was actually really good that I decided that I really wanted to work hard to convince them to pivot um, and, like, it would have cost more money, the show that we ended up with, all of those things. I really had to convince people that it was the best way forward because – we ended up not being able to go into the collections at the University of Melbourne at all because oh. we were completely locked off campus. Oh, yep. Yeah, you um, you had to do so much to even get on campus. Like it was pretty crazy, yeah. the amount of paperwork and everything. And I just, I just could just, I was so glad that we weren't trying to get into the collections to curate the show. Yep. Um, so, 
yeah, it's been an amazing experience because um, I guess all of the community members that are on the show are really, really happy with the show and that is a huge relief yeah. um, because that's all I really wanted. And, um, you know, people got paid decent commission money and a lot of artists and others lost work during COVID. So to have a project that was empowering people not just to have a voice but actually paying them as well to make the work, um, it felt good. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad it did. Like, I, I've, se- I've seen the exhibition and also just the phenomenal lineup of different knowledge holders and artists who you've um, been able to, to bring together to make something that's really special. And you see all those voices and like mob uh, represented. And uh, I, I, I just think it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, is there any like highlights for you that you would say to a listener of, hey, like you, you should come out and check this out. Uh, these are some things to look forward to. That's kind of mean for you to ask me that, Crystal, because <laughs> it's like asking child. me which my favourite child, um, which, yeah, and I guess we all have one. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, I mean... You um, can... No, but yeah, I know what you mean. Look, um, it's that's a really hard question for me to answer in so many ways. I can imagine. That it's yeah. such a big lineup, and I feel like you could just t- talk me through every uh, 30, 30 con- contrib- contributor and what they've been able to bring forward, but we'd probably just yeah. run out of time. Look, the one that I would choose definitely is one that has really, really um, been a, a beautiful discussion when I've done lectures. I've done more than 20 lectures with different groups from all over the University of Melbourne and beyond, and I get to talk about the show, which has been my favourite bit, to be able to share the show and give people insights into the artists and their work and what's represented there on the floor and, and how it relates to Indigenous knowledge and empowering people to lead in actions on country. Um, the work, I think, that's promoted the most conversation and especially with students um, and whilst the show is at Parkville Campus Old Quad at University of Melbourne, I made it for all ages. So lots of young people have seen it. And actually, we wrote a whole education program um, myself together with the Science Gallery education team and young Aboriginal facilitators. So over 3,000 um, high school students have seen the show. So that's wow. been brilliant. Yeah, that's um, amazing. To think so many of them have um, had the opportunity to do those workshops with the young facilitators. Yeah, wow. But yeah, the, I guess the piece that seems to create the most conversation is one called Murrum, um, Overflowing. Um, that's in Radri language. And that was a piece that was um, done by um, Jonathan Jones, who's a Radri Gamilaroi artist. And um, he got more than 10 Aboriginal artists from across the southeast to contribute works. And it's a beautiful um, visual feast of the abundance of country. And Jonathan walked into the um, the exhibition space uh, when he came to have a look at it early on. I was lucky he was in Melbourne and he was thinking about being involved. And he's, you know, all the artists um, in the show are incredible artists, but, you know, some of them are actually internationally famous and, and Jonathan's one of those. And we've also got emerging artists in the show, all different levels, which is really yeah. important to me yeah. for people to be able to tell stories together at different, you know, stages of their career Um, but Jonathan walked into this room that there is an old quad and it's this room that is so stifling in its colonialism it almost takes your breath away it's got this really crazy old like pointy nasty furniture that um and and gaudy carpet and it kind (laughs) of it looks like something out of I guess Hogwarts or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Jonathan said, oh, my God, this is so ugly, we have to use it. <laughs> and so he decided to sort of cover that 
sterile, strange colonial um, place with um, absolutely beautiful items from country that are all made from country and by um, Aboriginal people from the southeast who are still carrying on traditions of our old people and making these beautiful items and there's also lots of food items on the table so it opens up this wonderful conversation and for me one of the things I really love to share with those young people especially that are coming is I kind of talk about a lot of the items on the table which I'm really passionate about Um, most especially kwandong that's one of my favorite plants in the whole world and is really important on my country but lots of different diverse people's countries right across Australia. What is Kwandong? Oh, so Kwandong, um, a lot of people call it native peach. And um, it's a very beautiful tree. I think it's, I think it's sexy. Like it just looks gorgeous in the landscape. Um, And it has these really incredible crimson fruits that when you're out on country and it's in full fruit, it actually looks crazy because out on country, like a lot of our plants are, kind of um, have a lot of oil in them as opposed to water because of how much the sun beats down on them. So their composition is a lot of kind of oil more than water and it makes these really smoky kind of tones. And so you get these crimson fruits on this tree and it just absolutely looks like it's showing off. (laughs) Um, And and just it's a beautiful plant and it's really important medicinally, nutritionally um, for our people and lots of others and um, yeah, it's just, it's one of my favourite plants. Like I could talk about it for hours, Aww. but I won't. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then I say to students, so, you know, starting to understand these um, food ways that we had that were really strong and, um, you know, kept us uh, thriving and surviving for more than 65,000 years. You know, what do we have as part of our diets today that speaks to this deep knowledge? Yeah, no, I, I, um, yeah, I really recommend any listeners to be able to go and attend. Uh, can you tell us quickly, because I've had a wonderful time chatting to you, <laughs> um, uh, how listeners might, might be able to access um, the exhibition? Do they need to yeah. pre-book tickets? Can they turn up? No, you can just rock up and it's open um, Tuesday to Friday from 10 till 4. Yep. And then on Saturdays, um, it's 11 till 4. And we're, the only Sunday that we're open is the final day which is the 21st of August. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it basically runs Tuesday to Saturday, but the Saturday hours are just that it's open an hour later. And, yeah, please um, come along if you haven't seen it yet and you're keen. Yeah, definitely. So remember, um, University of Melbourne's Parkville campus, Old Quad, uh, go check out Emu Sky Exhibition while it's still there. It shouldn't be missed. Um, I've, I will definitely go see it in its final week. I've enjoyed every experience I've had with it so far. Always feel like when you see it, there's something new to absorb and take in. So oh, yeah, that's good. I do recommend any listeners to jump on that. But Zena, thank you so much for your time this week. It's been so wonderful to have a chat with you. It's always a delight. Um, and uh, yeah, look, honestly, congratulations and also thank you for your work with the State of the Environment Report. Um, I know that the uh, what you've been able to bring forward um, is really important and really significant. So, uh, you know, 100,000 words, that's way, way more than I wrote for my book. <laughs> so um, I have to say that's a phenomenal effort and definitely worthy of a, a thesis or something equivalent you know thanks so much for having me crystal pleasure thank you all right so we are wrapping up for indigenuity this week um we'll be back next week with another guest but until then go check out emu sky and we'll see you then thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's indigenuity a weekly radio show hosting conversations with indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of indigenous ingenuity indigenuity is broadcast live on triple r every sunday afternoon Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.